great privilege for me to be here this morning to bring you greetings from your sister church in the land of insanity, Harvest OPC in San Marcos, California. It's also a great uh, privilege for me to be back in this pulpit and to see you seated on your new pews and rejoicing in the new faces. Uh, Some of you I recognize, some of you I don't, but I do thank God for this church, for your pastor and its leaders. If you would please open in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6. And if you're spending a little time looking for that, go to the book of Psalms. Keep going to your left past the book of Job. If you get to Chronicles, you've gone too far. I believe it is your custom here as it is uh, with us to stand for the reading of God's words. If you are able to do that, please do so. Please also take note that it is a longer reading this morning. We are reminded elsewhere in scripture that the grass outside will fade away, flowers will do the same, but the word of the living God will endure forever. Now let us strive both to hear and faithfully heed God's word together this morning from Ezra chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree and a search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ectabana, Batana, the citadel that is in the providence of Media. A scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber." Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill." May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. 
They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Dear Holy Spirit, we believe that your word is life-giving. We also believe that you are the one who not only inspired your word, we believe that you have preserved it in its integrity down to this very day. But our particular hope this morning is that you would bless the reading and especially the preaching of your own word in such a way that faith, hope, and love would be worked within our hearts and that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune God, would receive glory and honor in the church. Bless us, we pray, even as we pray with confidence in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most celebrated and celebratory musical compositions ever written in history is actually based, at least in part, upon our text today, Ezra chapter 6. In 1741, George Friedrich Handel wrote this beautiful piece that you know now as the Messiah, in which he contemplated the question, who may abide in the presence of God? The God of heaven and earth, the God who not only commanded his temple to be made, but who led his people away into exile because of their sins. And now he comes again, and again, the question, he comes again, and with this question, Handel contemplates who may stand, who may dwell in the presence of God? The answer, of course, is found in the Messiah, which leads to that grand, loud, and exhausting Alleluia over and over at the end. This morning, we're going to look at this text, and we're going to look at it in the three ways uh, that are highlighted here in our outline. God's people benefit from his provision. God's people prosper by his hand. And finally, leading towards the supper, God's people celebrate his goodness in the Lamb. So the first way that we want to think about the text before us this morning is how God's people benefit from his provision. It's a little bit hard when you're visiting preacher to sort of airdrop into the middle of the book. I know it's hard for you. Uh, we haven't been working together towards uh, this chapter in the middle of the book, chapter 6 
Uh, But in Ezra chapter 6, opposition to the exiles rebuilding the temple uh, has been a major theme. God gave a decree at the beginning of the book that Israel should be able to return to the land, that they should begin reconstructing the temple that had been laid waste in Jerusalem. And a remnant exile begins the march, almost like a second exodus, making their way from captivity back to the land of promise. Along the way, they meet a variety of different challenges and opposition. And even when they get to Jerusalem, uh, they are once again greeted with adversaries that oppose the reconstruction of the temple. This opposition leads to a search. The governor of the area, a man named Tatnai, uh, calls into question what the Jews are doing and asks King Darius to search and see if what they are doing is actually Legitimate, And so a search takes place. King Darius responds now to Tatnai's request uh, regarding his inquiry. Is what the Israelites doing legitimate? And documents are found. Search is made and documents are found that a king before Darius, King Cyrus, actually did indeed make such a decree that Israel should rebuild the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. But not only did he make a decree that it should be rebuilt, he also promised to fund it. Darius would not only honor this decree and allow it, as we see in our text, he goes on to enforce it. Now you have to pause and appreciate it, it's perhaps not too hard to do, that a pagan king should not only uphold the word of a previous pagan king, this is kind of like upholding something like the constitution, if you will, but that he actually comes alongside the people of God and aids them in the building, let alone the rebuilding of their temple. Some things appear too good to be true, but this is what is happening in the providence of God in Ezra chapter 6. The dark clouds of opposition against Israel's rebuilding are now giving way to something remarkably beautiful. Dark clouds give way to beautiful dawns. And that's exactly what we see. William Cowper, the famous uh, English poet and hymn writer, had a very nice way of saying that we ought not to allow frowning providences to hide God's smiling face. We ought not to allow frowning providences to hide God's smiling face. As Israel made their way back to the land, uh, they were greeted with what they perceived to be frowning providences. As they got into the land and began rebuilding, they were once again met with what they perceived to be frowning providences. And yet, behind those frowning providences was God's smiling face. Never in their lives had such words seemed so true. This led to what? As they saw these clouds of opposition, they began to doubt. Doubt leads to atrophy. And atrophy often succumbs to disobedience. And so what did God do? Well, if you go back and you look at the previous chapters, when Israel began to doubt, when Israel began to atrophy, when Israel began uh, to disobey and became spiritually sluggish, God sent a couple of fiery preachers named Haggai and Zechariah to wake Israel up out of their spiritual slumber, to get them back to the work of rebuilding the house of God. And so now in Israel, excuse me, Ezra chapter 6, Israel is on the move. Action is about to take place again. But we note that it's not simply the heart of God's prophets or even the hearts of God's people 
that God has touched. God has turned the heart of the king. And this is not the first king. It reminds us of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. We sometimes go to the beach in Southern California and you've made the trek east. And you know what this is like to watch little kids get just beneath the tide line and dig with their little shovels and create uh, these little paths that direct the water. My youngest is four and she sets her will against Pacific Ocean and somehow the ocean bends the knee for a little while. But here, it says that God takes the heart of the king into his hand like a stream of water, and he turns it wherever he wishes. That's exactly what's happening here in Ezra chapter 6. God has turned the heart of the king. And who but God could do that? Turn the heart of a pagan king. After citing the decree by Cyrus in verses 2 through 5, Darius begins to uphold and even to enforce the decree. He puts teeth into the decree, making it very potent and very effective. And the first thing that he does is he puts Governor Tatani on a leash. You can hear the strong, authoritative, but also protective language in verse 7, where the king tells Tatani, let the work alone. Literally, Keep away. Keep away from them. Don't bother them. Don't disturb them. This is Cyrus calling off the dogs. Not just Tatani, the governor, but even his associates. Leave the work alone. Let it continue. Leave the people alone. Don't bother them and try to get into their heads. And it just, it just keeps getting better. Not only does he give this verbal restraint, verse 8 lists financial provision that the king is now making for Israel to rebuild the temple. Don't just leave them alone. Put money into their hands so that they can actually get the job done. The king tells them to pay them in full without delay from the royal treasury. Really, this is beginning to seem more and more just too good to be true. Moreover, on top of giving them money and paying them without delay, provide for them whatever is needed for their sacrifices when the temple is rebuilt. Give to them an endless number. And you see it recorded there. Bulls and rams and sheep and wheat and salt and wine and oil. Give them everything they need. Not simply to rebuild the temple and to pay their salary. But even to provide for the sacrifices when it's time to begin. What do we see here? Well, in a certain sense, uh, this is a stage reset. This is very much like when Israel plundered the Egyptians on the way out of Egypt. Here they are plundering the Assyrians as they are making this second exodus. Darius reveals his motive. If you're wondering what would make a pagan king do this, on the one hand the answer is very simply. uh, The hand and providence of God has turned the heart of the king. But in verse 10 Darius does display, at least from his perspective, a little bit of his motive for doing this, that the people here, the priests and the Levites, might pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now there's a wonderful little hint and uh, explanation here. At this time, in the ancient Near East, it was quite popular to be a polytheist. What we mean by that is a person who believes in many gods. 
And the thought was that a god was a god in a certain land, in a certain area, and he had power in that area, but he didn't have power everywhere. So a smart king would want all the gods in the surrounding lands to be on his side. And in a certain way, that's what Darius is doing here. He's sort of patronizing the God of Israel. He, he wants the God of Israel to be on his side, not only his side, but the side of him and his sons. And so that is his internal motivation. What it makes very clear is that Darius is no Christian, if you want to think of it that way. He is not one who is truly converted to Israel and its religious ways. In fact, it'd be honest to call it pure selfishness. Darius is allowing them, enabling them, protecting them in their rebuilding effort that they might pray for him and for his sons because his religion believed in many gods and he doesn't want to anger the God of Israel. He wants that God, in his view, to be on his side. But what a great lesson. God can use selfish pagan kings to do his will. How big is your God? How long is his arm? How strong is his grip? How effective is his plan? God's smiling face lies behind every frowning providence. Darius goes on to even issue a pretty serious threat. Doesn't simply provide for them. Tell Tatani and his associates, stand down. He adds to it his own personal threat. Something Cyrus had not said. Whoever stops these exiles shall be impaled upon a beam taken out of his own home. That's, that's making it kind of personal. I'm going to take a two by four out of your house and I'm going to stick you on top of it. It's kind of, kind of gross. And then to add to that, insult to injury, and his house shall be turned into a, pardon the language here, but it's in the Bible, a dunghill. That's kind of gross. It's a little over the top, isn't it? But, but it makes a point. I don't want to be impaled on a big piece of wood, and I'd prefer not to have my home turned into a dunghill. And I imagine my wife feels the same way. And what's the point? Don't mess with Israel. Thus says the word of the king. Remember that it was these people, the Assyrians, you might not have known this, uh, who were actually, at least according to historians, the first to develop the cruel, torturous form of execution we know as the cross. The Assyrians not only invented it, uh, they had grotesque ways of amplifying it, so much so that the laws in Deuteronomy that actually uh, did allow for capital punishment, the execution of a person, uh, dialed way back from the heinous, hideous little additions that the Assyrians had made. Uh, Darius stands right in line with these people. These are a warring people known for acts of cruelty and even torture. And that's what Darius threatens here. They had rules in Israel like how long a body might be allowed uh, to endure on the cross or uh, how long a body might remain upon a cross because in Assyria there were no such rules. There were no such protective boundaries even for the rights of the dying. So here is Darius effectively threatening the Persian or Assyrian version of the cross to anyone who gets in the way of rebuilding the temple of God. Death awaits the one who stands in the way. And so he puts his little P.S. and signature at the bottom. I, Darius, 
make a decree, let it be done with all diligence, so let it be written, so let it be done. God's people have clearly benefited from God's provision, but how much more are they about to prosper under his hand? And this takes us to our second point. Again, those clouds of opposition can sometimes bring refreshing rain. I just like talking about rain a lot because it doesn't do that much in California and I, I miss it from here. But that's what you see. Clouds of opposition that come and bring refreshing rain. Winds that stand against us can some beco- sometimes become uh, the very wind in our sails. Isn't it an irony? The same wind that in a certain sense blows against us and opposes us can turn around by the hand of God and become the very wind that carries us across to our path. Verse 13, verse 13 according to the word of the king, Tatnai and the associates actually did as they were told. This is remarkable. Uh, this is uh, one politician saying to another, this is what you ought to do. And then the next one down, actually doing it and carrying out the plan, uh, all with a certain measure of integrity. It, it actually is a wonderful dream. According to the word of the king, they do as they are told. Verse 14, so did also the elders of the Jews. They all got back to work and refinished the building of the temple. One of the reasons why uh, Handel draws from this chapter is because this is where they actually get the work done. That's what's so beautiful about this particular chapter. There's an interesting alignment in verse 14. If you notice, it, it almost seems offensive or awkward. That first is mentioned, the decree of God. And then immediately following, the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and even King Artaxerxes. The same term used of God's decree is also used of the decree by these three pagan kings. Not simply one king, but all three of them. The mention of Artaxerxes is is very provocative. If you're a careful Bible history nerd, uh, you might have noticed that Artaxerxes is not even king yet. This is Ezra's way of sort of uh, reaching around the corner of history. Not only will the temple be rebuilt, but so also will the walls. This anticipates the next book, Nehemiah, which is the book in which the wall around Jerusalem is actually rebuilt. So why is Artaxerxes mentioned here? It's really a beautiful and pastoral point. Here's the point. God is the God of our past. And we see that in Cyrus, for the beginning of the book, it's Cyrus who first makes the decree. God is the God of the present, and now under King Darius, that decree given by Cyrus is finally being carried out. God is the God of the present, God is the God of the past, but in reference to Artaxerxes, we also see that God is the God of the future. Even as Israel continues down the trail, on the other side of finishing the temple, they will continue the work of rebuilding the wall. And the God who is with them in the past, the God who is with them in the present, will continue to be with them in the future. Our God, our help, our ages past, our hope for years to come, as the hymn so rightfully expresses. Another Smiling providence is found in the fact that even the date is given. One of the things that we've been noticing in our study through the book of Ezra is that uh, Ezra is kind of like, like an inspired accountant. If you can imagine such a thing. He's very attentive to detail. He, he, like, he likes lists for the list 
makers in the room. That's the kind of person Ezra is. He makes lists. He, he checks them twice. I'll stop there. He's not Santa Claus. But he's, he's very careful. And when he gives lists about people, there's always a reason why those lists are important. When he gets down into the minutiae, it even gives dates. There's something there, and a date is given here. Uh, the date when Israel completes the reconstruction of the temple is precisely, not generally, it is precisely given, and that date would be March 12th, 515 B.C. And you say, well, so what? Well, uh, that is four years after the work has begun. And that tells you something about Israel because it should not have taken this long. It's four years after the work has begun. Twenty years have gone by since this whole uh, ordeal began. But perhaps even more importantly, it's 70 years since Solomon's temple was consecrated. This is an anniversary. You ever go back to certain places for an anniversary celebration and, and sort of drink in the nostalgia of the moment? We've been here before. Drink in uh, the nostalgia of the moment. This date is the date we, and you fill in the blank with, met or got married or became Christians or whatever it was. So like a couple separated For many years, Israel having been in exile, in a certain sense, separated from the land of their belonging. Like a couple separated who happened to meet again, and not simply meet again, but at the same place. And on the anniversary of the day when they first met, Israel's temple reconstruction is finished on the first temple's 70th birthday. That's pretty cool. That's all in the providence and hand of God. And again, it shows us this little uh, portrait about the character of our God, that he not only smiles behind clouds of opposition, his work is poetry in motion. God's not simply organized and attentive to detail. He's beautiful in all of his ways. And nothing, not even the smallest details of our lives, are wasted in the sight of God. The book of Ezra has this one lovely point stretched throughout it, chapter by chapter, God cares about details. He cared about the details of Israel's life. He cared about the details of the king's life. He cares about the details of our lives. And his providence is always about us. A celebration begins. Not the climactic one. We're warming up. Verse 16 suggests a giant party. Clearly they were Presbyterian. People of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles begin to celebrate with joy. And you might wonder uh, what they have to be celebrating uh, about. In many ways it's kind of obvious. Why is Israel joyful? Why are the people of God celebrating? They're joyful because the temple's Rebuilding was completed. You know that sense of satisfaction when the work is done. But it's one thing to simply finish a project. This is holy work. This is holy business. The temple is everything to Israel. It's the house of God. It's the place where God dwelled. It's the place where his name had dwelled. It is the very summary of all of Israel's religion. It's not simply, we finished our work, let's take a break. It's, we finished the house of God, let's celebrate. 
Joy not only because the work is done. Joy because in getting that work done, very clearly and providentially, God had turned the heart of pagan, selfish, warring kings to favor Israel. This small and helpless people of God. And not only that, they are joyful because they are alive and back in the land, back to the place where they belong, back to the place that God had promised them, back to the place that was a signal of blessing rather than cursing. Israel has everything to celebrate and their joy culminates because the eye of their God, as Ezra said earlier, was upon them and because the hand of their God, as Ezra says elsewhere, was with them for good. The hand of God that turns the heart of the king, the hand of God that pushed Israel out of the land and into exile is now the very same hand of God that has reached out and wrapped around his people and drawn them savingly and sweetly back to himself. Behind those frowning providences was a smiling, patient, and able God. They were joyful, therefore, perhaps the most because God forgives sinners. When you think about it, finishing a project, there's a little satisfaction in that. Coming home feels great. But what do they really have most to rejoice in? God forgives sinners. Notice how their celebration leads off with this sin offering noted in verse 17. Israel very rightly knows exactly where they're supposed to begin the party. And they begin the party by dealing with their sins. This is not a pagan party. This is a pious party. They begin with a sin offering. And notice, hundreds of bulls, hundreds of rams, hundreds of lambs, and then 12 goats, symbolic of the 12 tribes, were told carefully. Uh, this is Israel recreated. This is a fresh start. This is a point of renewal. But when you pause and think about it, they've been now away in exile and captivity uh, for decades upon decades. When you contemplate it like this, so many people, so many years, so much sin. There's a lot to be dealt with here. The return to the land was symbolic of their return to God. Their exile itself was symbolic of the fact that their sins had become so great in the sight of God, God finally said, enough. And he drove them away, lo ami, for that moment in time, they were not his people, Ichabod, uh, that name that no Christian parent ever uses of their child because it means what? The glory departed from the temple of God. But now they have returned. And now the temple has been rebuilt. They're even returning to life according to the law of Moses as we're, ter- we're told in verse 18. Uh, this is not simply corporate celebration. This is corporate repentance. And where there is repentance, there must be a reckoning with sin. A reckoning with the reality of sin. For the unwelcome base note throughout this long song is that the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Thus, Israel's climactic party when the temple's reconstruction actually begins with a whole lot of death. It's an odd party. Hundreds of bulls. Hundreds of rams. Hundreds of lambs. And twelve goats. Thus, we begin to sense that the celebrating of the rebuilding of the temple is glorious. 
And this smiling providence of God is glorious. But it is not enough. Israel must celebrate God's goodness even further with one particular event, and that is with the Passover lamb. This is our third and final point. It's a kind providence that today we should be able to have the Lord's Supper today. I know you have it here weekly in in this respect. Uh, You have, in a certain sense, one up on John Calvin. Did you know that John Calvin argued in many places that he believed that every sermon should rightly end at the Lord's table? But he was actually not able to practice it the way that he wished in Geneva. So it's a little bit of an irony, providentially, that the thing he believed in so strongly, he was not able to practice. Uh, But we are today a kind providence. Fitting that this text should cultivate in the Passover, and I'm sure your pastor, your pastor will use language in a little while that connects to that. But when you pause and think about it, uh, go back to the words of those kings. Not simply the decree from God, but Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. The past, the present, and the future. And note that when we think about the Passover, it has that very same connection. When Israel gets to the end of not only reconstructing the temple, but their celebration, the plain lands at the Passover. The party culminates in the Passover, and it's fitting. It's beautiful. It truly is poetry in motion. Why? Because it's not just the words of kings that look back to the past, the present, and the future. The Passover did as well. Israel purified themselves. Why? Because they had committed sins and those sins need to be dealt with. Israel prepared themselves for the Passover. It began with the priests and the Levites. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb on behalf of the people. And notice in our text, they did not slaughter lambs during the Passover. They slaughtered one lamb. It's beautiful. One lamb for all the people. One lamb for the people of God. And notice who it is who eats it. I think this is just the kind of stuff that gets me really excited. The exiles, the priests and Levites. But then we're told, there's this little post-it note, this addition. And everyone who joined them and separated themselves from the people. This is Jew first and then Gentile. People who are outside of Israel, who have watched Israel's return, who have watched the hand of God turn selfish pagan kings to smile upon Israel, who have seen the rebuilding of this temple where God has promised to inhabit and from which God has promised to bless his people. And there are those who join themselves, who take up the yoke of Yahweh. These are Gentile proselytes now gathering together with the people of God, the people of Israel, one people, Jew and Gentile, for whom they sacrifice one Passover lamb. And they celebrate together. They keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with joy. Again, that language of joy. And why is it there? They were celebrating because the Lord had made them joyful. They were celebrating because God had turned the heart of the king. God had turned a tide of opposition into a wave of support. God had turned those frowning providences into a revelation of his beautiful, steadfast love and never failing, smiling face. But again, if you know anything about the Passover... Even though God might smile upon it, 
His smile upon the Passover would not last forever, and neither will this party. The Passover celebrated what God had done. It looked back to the Exodus. Their Passover celebrated what God was doing. The exiles have returned. But the Passover also looked forward to what God was yet to do. The blood of bulls and goats have been offered on behalf of their sins. But you know, beloved, if you know your Bible, that the blood of bulls and goats, even hundreds and hundreds upon hundreds of bulls and goats, will never be enough to satisfy for our sins. All the blood of bulls and goats can never satisfy for all the sin that they and we have committed. And even the blood of this one lamb, this punctuated, celebrated Passover lamb offered in Ezra chapter 6 could not satisfy for sin. At its very best, at its very blessed beloved, all it could do was atone. All it could do was function like a down payment on a larger debt, a heavier wage that was yet to be reckoned with and settled. But this Passover lamb in Ezra chapter 6 does not settle the debt. Three times in our life, my wife and I have bought a house, and I'll never forget the feeling the first time I did. And you get to the very back, and there's that page called the amortization sheet that that introduces commas that no one should ever have to look, look at. And all of a sudden, this overwhelming feeling that I will never live long enough to pay this off. I I, I will never be able to work off all this debt. In a certain sense, beloved, what we see in Ezra chapter 6 is the amortization of our sins. But it goes on and on and on and on. The burden of this debt is crushing. The wages of sin is not simply exile, it is death. And underneath the awful load of the burden of our sins, beloved, you and I are dead as a doornail. But behind even such sober and frowning providences, there's the smile of an everlasting God. And what is it that God will do? Who is the real hero in the chapter? It's not the pagan king who for a moment smiled upon the people of Israel. Who is the hero of the chapter? Is it it Ezra the scribe, the meticulous, attentive to detail, detail, accountant-like prophet? No. The hero of the story is God himself. The one who would eventually do away with these sacrifices and in a certain sense actually frown upon them. The one who has already shown his ability to frown at the temple and to leave it in judgment. And to even turn his face, his own face, From the Passover lamb. But not simply the Passover lamb in Ezra chapter 6. The grand demonstration here. The climactic moment comes when God truly does turn his smile away. From the temple incarnate Jesus Christ. From the Passover lamb who came to lay down his life as a sin. As a sin offering on behalf of his people. To offer up not simply atonement or a down payment for our sins. But to satisfy all of its debt once and for all. And this is exactly what happens for us in Jesus our Passover lamb. His flesh and his blood become our bread and our wine. And even more than Israel before us we were able to celebrate in him. His body becomes our temple and we become His and we celebrate in Him. 
And even more than in Ezra chapter 6, where Jew and Gentile are gathered together in the blood of that one lamb, how much more now have Jew and Gentile, those from every nation, tribe, and tongue, past, present, and future, been formed into one family, created by the good hand of God, who smiles upon his people, and we celebrate in him. The temple rebuilt in Ezra's days was a remarkable demonstration that behind those frowning providences, indeed, there is a God who smiles upon his people. But for you, beloved, who are in Christ Jesus, his smile for you is even better. Because his smile for them would fade away. But his smile upon you never does. You ever thought of it that way? God never ceases to smile at you. Why? Not trying to be trite. Not trying to be silly. Because when he looks at you, he always sees his son. And he climactically turned his smile away from Jesus, the son of God, at the cross. So that the people of God would always be the recipients of the smile of a loving God who has already satisfied his wrath who has already reconciled the enmity and in Christ has already received full payment for the wages of your sin. This is a good reason to celebrate. As long as you are actually in Christ. Handel asked the question in his wonderful hymn, Who may abide in the presence of the Lord? It's very important for you to know That it's not simply by being a Jew, or by coming to church, or by doing anything other than being found hidden in the Lamb. For only those found in the Messiah, even as Handel's Messiah sings, that true Passover Lamb will be found in God's everlasting temple. Only those who have been knit to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in Him alone shall enjoy God's everlasting smile. So to say it very soberly, and perhaps even in a way that will intentionally make you uncomfortable if you are outside of Christ, if that happens to be the case, and you have not placed your faith in Christ, all that awaits you is not the smile of God, but His frown. And you do not want to meet that God if He is not smiling. But if you are in Christ... All he does, beloved, is smile. I have four kids. They sometimes drive me crazy. Most of the time, they make me really happy. And one day, in a moment of, you know how the noise level just rises to a point where you can barely take it anymore, and then then you find you're using your voice to get louder than theirs to somehow quiet that, but it just creates more and more noise. And one of my kids said to me, Dad, I don't like it when you're angry. I like it when you're happy. In God's presence, beloved, because of Jesus, you will always see his smile and never his wrath. Jesus endured it all for you on the cross. He triumphed over all of it in his resurrection. And this is why Handel's Messiah ends. On this note, he shall reign forever and ever. The God of our past, God of our present, God of our future, the Savior of our past, the Savior of our present, and the Savior of our future is the Messiah. And He is King. Not Darius. Not Cyrus. Not Artaxerxes. He is King. 
and he shall reign forever and ever. So how do you read the clouds? Do you see behind them God's smiling face? Do you see that if God provided for Israel things that seem almost too good to be true, he's provided, beloved, in Christ Jesus even more for you by his word, by his spirit. And as another hymn goes, what more can he say than to you he has said, than to you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. Where does Handel's Messiah end? It ends with the people of God, not simply outside constructing, but inside the temple because of the Messiah. The answer to the question, who may abide the presence of the Lord, is found in the Messiah of the Lord. And so the great crescendo, the loud punctuation point at the end, is sung by the people of God, not outside, but inside the temple of the living God, not on earth. But in that heavenly Zion, if by God's grace you are citizens of that temple, a worshiper in that heavenly temple, then you, even more than Israel, have much to celebrate, much to praise him for. Let the party begin. Let's pray. For those of us who have attempted to sing that end, sometimes known as the Hallelujah Chorus with the choir, know what it's like to have voices that are completely tapped out at the end. But what a wonderful sound to imagine that even now the angels in heaven gather around the throne and the saints that have gone before us gather around the throne. People who were there in the days of Ezra, Jew and Gentile, proselytes from outside the land that came to worship in the temple of the living God, that even now they gather around the throne of the Lamb. And they sing praises to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you have been a God to them, a God of their past, their present, and their future, so also are you to us. But we know, O Lord, that even as I say these things, the clouds of opposition in this present evil age sometimes make them hard to see. And behind those clouds, O Lord, we struggle at times to sense your smiling face. And so we ask, O Lord, that by your Spirit, you would grant to us the faith that can see beyond what the natural eye can, and that you would help us to behold Jesus, that glorious Lamb, who has died and is now raised, King of kings, Lord of lords, triumphant over his people, ruling and reigning in and through his church. And we ask, Lord, as we fix our eyes upon him, that we would find great joy in our lives and great hope for what is yet to come. For one day, not only shall we sing in your presence, we shall sit down and be fed the marriage supper, even the table of the Lamb. And so as we partake this day, O Lord, help our hearts not only to be ready to rejoice, but thankful for all that we have, for we receive it all by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now as you you are seated, you know that you are uh, invited to a pious party. Is that what what we should call it? I think so. I could not help but think of this passage of Scripture as uh, Pastor Eric was preaching. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. You notice I didn't bring a lamb with me here this morning. This is the reason. For Christ, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. How wonderful, how wonderful that God marks this with celebration. We are invited to celebrate a feast. We who have come to Jesus for rest, who have come to him for repose, get now to celebrate in this pious party as he offers to us his own body and blood to remind us of all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And yet, it is a pious party, isn't it? And it's not for everyone. Uh, Just as at that Passover that they celebrated, it was those who ate of the Passover lamb that participated in the Passover lamb. Uh, So Paul will say, are not all those who eat of the altar participants in the altar? That continues. Uh, You get to eat of the Passover lamb of Jesus Christ if you belong to Christ, if you are a participant in Christ. How do you know that you are a participant in Christ? Well, how do you come to Christ? You come to him in faith. You come to him reposing and resting upon him as he's offered to you in the gospel. And if you have come to Christ, if you, if you have come to him in faith and confessed your sins and you have become a member of his church, if the sign of baptism has been put upon you and you are trusting in Christ, then you are welcome to come and to participate in this feast today and find assurance of the forgiveness of your sins here. But if you do not yet belong to Christ through faith, uh, if you have not yet put your hopes and rests upon him, as Pastor Watkins said, the frown of God that is seen here in these elements, in a body that is torn to pieces and in blood that is poured out, that is what awaits those who are not found in Christ. And so this is a sobering moment for you. And I would urge you to call upon the name of the Lord because he promises that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, he will save. He loves to save. He's the savior of sinners. And the way that he has saved us is by giving us his son. And so today as we come, uh, let us come with a a sober-mindedness, but also with joy and celebration in our hearts as we come to receive Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. Uh, This is a meal for sinners, but for repentant sinners. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we approach your table now, Lord, we come as sinners, but we come as sinners whom you have invited and called and invited to this pious party to celebrate the festival of your Son, to receive these elements of bread and wine and to have our hearts overflowing with joy again this morning for all that you have accomplished. Lord, would you be pleased to take these elements now and set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, they might be a true and real means of grace to us. Lord, help us to examine our hearts well. Help us to take a moment now to reflect upon the ways in which we have offended you. But Lord, uh, cause our faith to rise up in this moment and to look to the body and blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to find there the forgiveness of our sins. 
uh, Lord, would you grant uh, that we would walk all of our days uh, with uh, being under your wonderful smile. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.